As they go, let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the great privilege it is for us to gather in the name of your great son, Jesus, and to be able to sing of his supremacy and of the hope that we have in him. Lord, thank you that you encourage us as we gather together to to sing of the greatness of Christ and how you encourage us even as we interact with each other and you encourage us as we study your word together and as we use our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. We would ask that you would come here today in a unique way through the power of your spirit so that we might understand your word better, so that we might see the great need that we all have for Christ and that we might be further burdened for those who are around us who do not have Christ. Do a great work in our midst. Lord, may this be so much more than a gathering. May this be so much more than a religious gathering where we go through certain traditions. May this be a time where we are empowered with the Spirit of God for the glory of Christ so that we would not ever be the same and so that this world would not be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to consider with me the significance of the reality that there are millions of people who believe the Bible is true, but who do not know the gospel. There are millions of people in this world who believe the Bible is true, but they don't know what the gospel is. They might be able to tell you the Ten Commandments and stand up for them. They might be very passionate about the Bible. But when you ask them, what is the gospel? They can't give you the right answer. In light of this significant issue, what I want to do this morning is look at what I'll call seven dismal certainties about sin. Seven dismal certainties about sin that show why merely believing the Bible cannot save you. I realize that's a mouthful, but I'll do it again. You abbreviate the best you can and do better than I've done. Seven dismal certainties about sin that show, that prove, that demonstrate that merely believing the Bible cannot save In other words, seven dismal certainties about sin that show us that we need the gospel which the Bible proclaims. We find these seven dismal certainties in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. So I'll invite you to turn with me there if you have not already turned to Romans chapter 7, 13 to 25. It is my contention, and I'm not trying to be contentious, but it is my contention that the person giving personal testimony in Romans seven thirteen to 25, is an unconverted person. I believe the Apostle Paul is looking back at his unconverted life, and he is talking about this severe struggle that he had as a Bible believer. He believed it was all true, but without the gospel, and it led to absolute frustration, absolute defeat, absolute powerlessness, absolute hopelessness, because while he believed the Bible, which is a good thing, He hadn't experienced the saving grace of God by believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that in last week we spent our entire time together talking about the two different views. 
So I gave 11 reasons why I think this man is an unbeliever. Uh, I could go the other way and be persuaded. I believe that before in my life too. It's, not, uh, it's an in-house debate. It's not one that we're going to divide over as a church. And we can say that because while there are hills worth dying for, this isn't a hill worth dying for because the Bible teaches both. Whether it's in Romans chapter 7 or somewhere else, the Bible does teach that true Christians truly struggle with sin. Galatians 5 talks about that. The Bible also teaches that if you're unconverted, you're not a true Christian. You've never truly believed the gospel. You can be religious and say you believe in God and you believe the Bible, but you will ultimately be frustrated beyond no measure and there will be no hope for you because you have not been freed from the bondage of sin. So the Bible teaches both of those. I'm taking the view that Romans 7 is talking about an unbeliever, again, as fits my introduction, who is very religious. Not just every unbeliever would talk this way, but if you're very religious and you really believe the Bible is the Word of God, you believe the law of God is true, but you're unconverted, you will sound like this person. And let me also say, by way of introduction, you know people like this. You might even be a person like this. We know people who say, I believe the Bible is true. And you ask them what the gospel is, and they give you something other than Jesus Christ lived for me a perfect life. Jesus Christ died for me a sinner's death, even though he never sinned. And he rose again from the dead on my behalf, and I believe in him and him alone, which is the gospel. And so this is very important for us. Because there are people all around us who are religious, who say they believe the Bible, who don't know what the gospel is, and therefore they're still under the power of sin. And they're still under the penalty of sin. And the last thing in the world we want to do is give them more principles for living the Christian life. Because they're not Christians. Okay, If the Apostle Paul were, were to, to stand here before you, he would say what he says in these pa- this passage, I think, to you about your friends around you who are religious who don't understand the gospel. Don't keep giving them more law principles. Give them the gospel. And that's where this will head. Well, I'm getting so excited. I'm taking too much time in my introduction. But I'm excited about this passage because of the way it ends, not the way it starts. It's going to get pretty dark. It's going to be pretty heavy. It's going to be depressing because that's what happens when you're religious and you're not converted. The first dismal certainty about sin that shows why merely believing the Bible is true cannot save and why we need the gospel. Number one, sinners are exposed by the law. Sinners are exposed by the law. And we see this at the end of verse 13, where he says there in Romans 7, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. He's making this clear point, this bold point. The commandment doesn't save The principle of following God and doing what God says, that can't save you. And as a matter of fact, what does it do? Through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. That's what it does. When I need help, when I need help out of my frustration because I'm I'm struggling with sin and I have this sin problem, what, what I don't need is for you to say, here's what God expects. Here's what God requires. Let me give you a Bible verse that tells you what God says. I I don't need that if I'm an unbeliever because all you are doing by telling me this is what God says is showing me that my sin is utterly sinful. 
this is a good thing because I need to see that my sin is utterly sinful. But please don't mistake a good thing with good news. The law of God doesn't save anybody. The law of God doesn't give hope. It makes sin utterly sinful. As it says in verse 13 at the end, it exposes sinners for what they really are, rebels and sinners. Now, I skipped the first part of verse 13. I want to go back to that just so you understand the structure a little bit better because I think it will help you read your Bible a little easier and better. Okay, what has happened is verse 13 is a transitional verse. The first part of 13, which we'll look at in just a second, points upward in your Bible, even though it doesn't literally, but it's connected to the verses that came before. And the last part of verse 13, which I just read, points downward and connects with what we're talking about today. And so it's a way to bridge the gap and talk about both. Clearly, before, in verses 7 to 12, he's talking about unbelievers and, 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 and how uh, sin is not God's fault, it's not God's law's fault, it's actually our fault, we sin. And then the last part of verse 13 is talking about what we're going to talk about today, which is this whole business uh, of, of hope not being found in keeping God's law if you're an unconverted person because you can't. It just shows how sinful sin is. So some of your Bibles, as they laid out the paragraphs, put verse 13 with the above section. Some of your Bibles put verse 13 with the below section. It just belongs in the middle. It's transitional. And, and that's uh, something important for us to see. So if you would, just look at verse 13 again at the beginning so you'll see what I mean. Therefore, to that which is good, he's talking about the law according to verse 12, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. No, 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 no. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. All of that is summarizing verses 7 to 13 above. Let's not blame God for our sin. Let's not blame God's law for our problems. Actually, it comes down to us. We're the sinful ones. And so he's closing that argument, but linking that argument with this new portion, he says, at the end of verse 13, which we just read, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The law of God exposes sin as sin. That's good, but that's not good news, right? Please don't misread this verse and somehow read it as saying something like, go ahead and look at the end of 13 and let me misread it. So that through the commandment, sin would be atoned. Or that so through the commandment, sin would be forgiven. It doesn't even come close to saying that, does it? I would suggest to you, even though we know that, we don't always act that way. When we talk to unbelievers who are religious... What we do is we just try to give them more law, more principles, more Bible-based teachings. Those are good things. But if you don't have the gospel, there's no atonement in those things. There's no hope in those things. There's just frustration in those things. And he's going to show us that, that frustration in this passage. I'm very concerned that we as Christians so many times, and, 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 and let's point the finger at pastors right now, since I am one, I'll do that. So oftentimes we're preaching law, law, law. Principles, principles, principles. Seven ways to do this. Three biblical 
principles for this and that and the other thing, and we just keep telling unconverted sinners that if they just do what God says, everything will be okay. And the Apostle Paul is going to take issue with that. We don't need more principles and more law to get out of our sin problem. What we need is good news. We need Christ. We need the gospel. We need the one who kept the law for us. We need the one who died in our place. That's where the hope comes. So let's move on now after that transitional verse to really get into the meat of things. Let's look at the second dismal certainty about sin that shows why merely believing the Bible isn't enough to save, why we need the gospel. Number two, sinners are in bondage to sin. Sinners are in bondage to sin. We see this in verses 14 and 15. It says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. The, the, the law is good. I agree with you, he's saying. I, I know, I understand that. I've given my life to understanding and memorizing the law. I, I agree that it's good. The problem is I'm not. The problem is I'm a sinner. And, and so it doesn't give me hope just giving me truth because I can't do the truth. I've been sold into bondage to sin. Sometimes we forget just how bad people are, how bad off people are. We just say, well, just do these principles. And Paul is saying, how can I do these principles? I'm in bondage to sin. I, I, I can't do them. I need someone to break me free. I need to be, to be uh, liberated. I'm in bondage to sin. Don't just give me more principles. Give me, give me good news, gospel news. And by the way, interpretively, verse 14 might call for a little bit of help. When you just read it, it might be a little bit confusing. Let, let, me, let me take a shot at it. I think it might help you. And here are the keys to understanding verse 14, verses 13 and 12. Okay? Let's relook at verse 14 where it says, For we know that the law is spiritual. Okay? In verse 13, it's called that which is good. Okay? So if the law is spiritual, that means the law is good. It's the opposite of sinful based upon verse 13 as well. Okay. Uh, Verse 14 says the law is holy, righteous, and good. So if you need some synonyms to help you understand what Paul means by spiritual, he means good, he means the opposite of sinful, he means holy, righteous, and good. Okay. Have that in your mind. Now let's keep reading. But I am of flesh. And you think, what, what does that mean? Well... From verse 13, we would know it to be sinful. In fact, it's in contrast to what is holy, righteous, and good. So we could say it's unholy, it's unrighteous, and it's not good. Or, chapter 7, verse 5, he uses in the flesh as a synonym for being unconverted. So when I read that in light of that, Interpretive process, for we know that the law is spiritual, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. But I am of flesh, I am unholy, I am unrighteous, I am not good, I am sinful. I'm sold into bondage to sin. Now maybe it makes even more sense. This is a dismal reality about sin. (laughs) I'm in bondage to it. There's no hope. You can tell me all day long that God's law is good and holy and righteous. You can just tell me all day long. And you know what? I'm a religious person. I will agree with you. But I'm the problem. 
I'm not. And so it doesn't mean no good for you to just give me more information. Sinners are in bondage to sin. Remember that as you talk to people who are not converted and you're just trying to give them more information. They're in bondage to sin. They need a liberator. They need Christ. They don't need more principles. They need Romans 6. Look back at Romans chapter 6. What Paul says is true of Christians. It provides a huge contrast to Romans chapter 7. Here's what they need. They they don't need more law. They don't need more information about what God requires. If they already know that, like Paul does. Romans chapter 6 verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin. What a contrast that is to chapter 7 verse 14. In bondage to sin. He's saying as a Christian, you were in bondage. You were slaves to sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin... Then he says in verse 20, you were slaves. That leads to death according to the end of the verse. Then look at verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin, you're no longer in bondage, right? And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Please remember, unconverted people are in bondage to sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has made it clear that, that Christians are not in bondage to sin. Oh, sure, they might struggle, but they've actually been freed. They're no longer slaves to sin. But that's through faith in Christ, not through principles, not through more law-keeping. Then let's keep going in verse 15. Still talking about sinners are in bondage to sin, this dismal certainty, number two. For what I am doing, the Apostle Paul says, I don't understand. Literally, I don't know. What I am doing, I don't know. It's not rational. I, we might say, I don't know what I'm doing. This doesn't even make any sense. I know the law of God. It says, here's what you're supposed to do. And, and, and I will agree ten times over, that's what I'm supposed to do. The problem is, I don't know what I'm doing because I'm not doing it. Which fits back, to, I'm in bondage. This is hopeless. There, there's no hope in this. This is absolutely hopeless. He further explains himself in verse 15. If you look with me, you'll see. He says, For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Again, he's in bondage. He's in total bondage. Too many times sometimes we suggest we should read Romans 7 to get hope. Paul would not tell you he's hopeful at this point in time. He, he said, this doesn't even make any sense. I don't even know what I'm doing. And, and I want to do this because I know it's right because that's what the Bible says I'm supposed to do. But I don't do it. This is absolutely hopeless. Some have, some have suggested that since he's saying I in the present, that he's talking as a believer here. Well, he's talking as a believer, but I think he's describing himself when he wasn't, wasn't a believer Grammarians call this the historical present. He's speaking in the here and now so we can, we can feel what he's going through. This makes it very real. And I think that's what's happening here. We have to remember that unconverted people are in bondage to sin. I would suggest to you stop telling them how to live the Christian life if they're not Christians. Paul didn't need to know what God's standards were at this point in time. He knew what they were. And they weren't the problem. He was the problem. And he needed help because he was in bondage. Well, let's keep moving on in verse 16. 16, let's put that also with this number 2. 
I think this is pretty, this is intriguing in verse 16 where he says, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I know what the Bible teaches. I should do what the Bible teaches because I'm a Jew and that's what Jews do. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I, I agree with the law confessing that the law is good. Now, did you see what he, what, he, what he just did there? He just admitted guilt. Okay? He just gave testimony against himself. As if to say, I'm the first one to admit the problem is with me. I know what the Bible teaches. I know what God requires. And I want to do it. And you know what? Even by my wanting to do it, it proves, in my mind at least, that God's law is not the problem. I'm the problem. The problem is he's in bondage. He's in shackles to sin. Let's look at another dismal certainty about sin that causes us to see we need the gospel. We don't merely need more principles. Number three, sinners are controlled by sin. Sinners are controlled by sin. We see this in verse 17. And then if we look ahead, we see it in verses 20 and 21. This is pretty graphic. Verse 17, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. How might you summarize that, if I were to ask you to summarize it? I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I've lost control. I'm not in control. Well, I'm, I'm controlled, but I'm not controlled by my own desire and what I should be doing. Did you see there he says, this sin dwells in him. This is not people doing wrong things because of their environment. This is people doing wrong things because of what's inside of them. He said, sin dwells in me. It comes from the same Greek word where we get our word for house. It's the Greek word for house. Sin is at home in me. Sin couldn't be more at home than in me. That's the kind of person I am. It's found its home. It's found its dwelling place. And it continually, literally it would be, resides inside of me. Again, I'm going to keep just beating this drum. Implication would be, therefore, I need Christ. I don't need more principles. I don't need more well-meaning, naive Christians teaching me how to live the Christian life by obeying certain principles because the fact of the matter is I could write a book on principles. I know the law. Stop giving me law principles. I know it. Give me Christ. And I'm passionate about this because I'm trying to say, would you please do that? He's in bondage. He needs Christ. You know, in so many ways, Romans chapter 7 is horrible. It's just a horrible thing that we're, we're studying. What are we thinking? But you know, we're looking at this so we can get to Romans 8, which is everybody's favorite. But it's going to be even more favoriter, if I could use bad English. 
The reason Romans 8 is so awesome and so great is because of Romans 7. There is no hope here. All the hope is in Romans 8. Because we have, we have, because of union with Christ in Romans 6, we have Romans 8, and now we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and now we're not in bondage anymore, and we just can't wait to get there. Sin dwells in me. It's at home in me. I'm out of control. Controlled by sin. Let's look ahead and see the same thing emphasized and repeated in verses 20 and 21. In 20 it says, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. See, he's controlled again. But sin which dwells in me, sin is at home in me, continually, present tense. And I don't think he's dodging personal responsibility. It's in me, he's saying. But it's controlling me. There's something wrong. There's a problem. The problem is sin and it dwells in me. He says, verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. He ratchets up the terminology. Sin dwells in me and then evil is inside of me. You know, the Apostle Paul could say as an unbeliever, you know, resident evil is not a video game for me. Resident evil is my life. That is who I am. I stand before you with resident evil. I not only do bad things, I am a bad person. And the law of God has made that clear. It hasn't saved me. It hasn't liberated me. I need Christ. You know, if the, again, to, to flesh this out into where we live, what the Apostle Paul doesn't need at this point in time is an accountability partner to get him as an unbeliever to do a better job at living the believer's life? He doesn't need that. What he needs is he needs Christ because he's in bondage, because he's indwelt by sin, he's overpowered by sin and evil. And while there's a place for those other kinds of things, too many times we get confused and we try to supplement and give people something other than Christ as some sort of surrogate Christ. And you know what? When you really look at it closely, what we're just giving them is more law, which shows how unable they are and how incapable they are. And what we need to do is keep pointing them to Christ so they can have atonement, they can have union, they can have forgiveness. Let's move on to number four, fourth dismal certainty. Dismal is a good word to use for this section, right? Just getting you ready for Romans 8. I love you so much, I'm willing to preach Romans chapter 7. Next dismal certainty showing us how sinful sin is. Number four, sinners are devoid of any true good. Sinners are devoid of any true good. They probably won't rebroadcast the sermon on the hour of power and uh, helping you with your self-esteem because it's not really about that at all. Verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And we'll finish that verse in just a little while, but let's stop for now where the comma is. How about that? What a thing to say. I know that nothing good dwells in me. I know that, you know, there's good and bad inside of me, and eventually, if I just try hard enough to keep the law and follow all of your principles, eventually the good will overpower the bad and it'll work out. Romans 7 is hopeful. He says, 
I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's pretty, pretty intense. After calling this pervasive depravity, you might know it as total depravity, theologian Anthony, Anthony Hokema says this, in Romans 7, 18-19, Paul highlights in graphic terms the impotence of men and women by nature, telling us that even if such persons wish to do what is good and right, they still are not able to do it. So no, Romans 7 doesn't give us hope from my perspective. Romans 7 gives us hopelessness. There is no good inside of me. What does he need? He needs Christ. And and, and if he believes in Christ, he'll be united with Christ. That was Romans 6. Not only united in his death, but united in his resurrection so he can live unto newness of life. And if he's united with Christ, then Romans 8 is going to teach us that he no longer would say such a thing as a believer because at this point in time, he has nothing good dwelling in him. But in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God is dwelling in him. He needs Christ because then he has the Spirit and then actually he has something good and... Everything changes. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, His Spirit who dwells in you. <laughs> he needs Christ so he, can have Christ so he can have the Spirit. As we move on and do what I said we would do in verse 18, let's look at the second part of verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Then he says, that is in my flesh. This is a big interpretive issue, so let, let's, let's look at it. If I were arguing that this man in Romans chapter 7 is a believer, I would go to this passage. And I would say, there's the qualifier. I'm not saying that, but my good friends hold that view, and here's what they would say, rightfully so. They would say, nothing good dwells in me. But then he says, that is in my flesh. And they would say, He's using that as a qualifier. So, nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh, but there's another part of me. And so that leaves room for the Holy Spirit. Well, grammatically, that that could be possible to have that be a qualifier. It's also possible to take it another way, and I think more probable, based upon the context of Romans 6, context of Romans 8, even the context of Romans 7. And that is to take what he's doing there at the end of verse 18 as a definition The idea is, in me, that is, in me, a sinner. I know that nothing good dwells in me. In me, a sinner. Because he often uses flesh as just a catch-all phrase for the sinner. In fact, let me prove it to you and look at chapter 7, verse 14 again. In 7.14, which is I would, I would write in the margin of 7.18, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Not part of me. I am of flesh. I am sinful. I am unrighteous. So I'll take it that way. Then let's keep going in verse 18. In verse 18, he goes on to say, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I have a mental capacity to understand words 
literature and therefore what the law of God requires. I know what it says. I'm a Jew. I've given my life to not only knowing what it says, but doing what it says. That's what he means when he says, the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The solution is not just to try harder. The solution is not if you could just be more biblical. The solution is Christ. He needs Christ. Here's a great cross-reference regarding this. Galatians 5.24. If flesh is the problem, listen to Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. See, He needs Christ. He needs the cross. I want to do the right thing because I know what the right thing is because I know what the Bible says, but, but, I, but I can't do the right thing because of my flesh. You know what? When you believe in Christ, your flesh is crucified with Christ. That's Galatians 5. He needs Christ. He needs the gospel. You just keep coming back to that same thing. Let's go on to number five, a fifth dismal certainty. Maybe with each point we should lower the lights even more until it's just black. And then at the end they'll come on because we're going to get there. We're going to get to Christ. Number five, sinners are incapable of doing any true good. Okay, they're devoid of any true good. They don't have any good in them. But now we're going to see they're incapable of doing good. Verse 19, for the good that I want. Again, I know what the Bible says. I want to do that. I'm a Jew. I, I, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. There is good. And I know what good is. And I know it would be a good idea to do good. But I don't. That's his testimony. I, I don't do the good. Well, Paul, but after you've had more rest, does it help? Or, or, you know, is this only when you haven't been in the Word, as we say? Is this only when you haven't been consistent with your quiet times, as we say? If you just work on those things a little bit more, perhaps that would solve the problem. Not according to what he's saying here. The problem is, this is just who I am as a person. I'm in bondage. I don't do good. And it's not that I just feel like I don't do good because we want to read Romans 7 that way sometimes. He doesn't say that. He doesn't hint at that. He's speaking in concrete terms. I I don't do good. And I do evil. Even look at the grammar. We did this last time, but I'll highlight it again in verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do. Do not do. Present tense. By character, by pattern, as a person who I am, as someone who doesn't do good. That's who this man is. Followed by another present tense verb. But I practice, present tense, the very evil that I do not want. As a person, I'm characterized by not doing the right thing, And as a person, I'm characterized by doing evil. That's who I am. That's what he says. So it's maybe stronger than we might have thought otherwise. 
is hopeless. This isn't just that I struggle to do the right thing. Yeah, I struggle in the sense that I want to do the right thing. But he's saying, I don't struggle in actual action. I I don't do the right thing. We looked at this last time too, but I just can't help but reference it because I know not all of you were here. But for the record as well, Galatians chapter 5 is very clear using the same verbiage, same word, same tense, that where this is true in the present tense, you're not a Christian. Okay? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, lists a bunch of evil actions. Goes on in verse 20. And then if you would just listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 21 at the end, that those who practice, there's our proso, present tense Greek word, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. Paul says, I practice the very evil I do not want. Paul also says, and he's not confused in Galatians chapter 5, those who practice such things don't inherit the kingdom of God. (sighs) Weighty stuff. But where is all of this going? Where does it need to go? Where it needs to go is to remind us that He doesn't need more information unless the information is the Gospel. He doesn't need more principles. He doesn't need more instruction unless the instruction is the Gospel. He needs Christ. We we forget sometimes who we're dealing with when we're dealing with unbelievers. We think somehow they have the spiritual sniffles. You know, and if we could just get them some NyQuil or something. I mean, if we could just kind of, you know, get them a little help or, or something to kill the pain. I mean, I don't know what we think. Instead, he's saying, you know what? I'm in bondage to sin. You know what I do as a pattern? I sin. That's who I am. I do evil. I don't, as a pattern, do the right thing. Oh, let me give you some biblical principles to follow. What are we thinking? What in the world are we thinking? What we need to be thinking is where he's going to take us, and that is you need Christ. You need the cross. You don't need more law. You need Christ. I'm just hoping and praying that Romans 7 is just going to to, to permeate and in a great sense fill our minds as we look at ourselves, yes, and as we look at other people. He's in bondage. There's no hope here. And then let me ask you a silly rhetorical question. Do Christians do the right thing? Do Christians do good? Well, you could say qualified, qualified, qualified. Well, not all the time, and we struggle too. I know, different sermon, different time, Galatians 5. But what's the answer? The answer is yes, Christians do good. Paul just says, I never do good. I only do evil, but Christians do good. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Let me skip. Gentleness, self-control. I at least skipped one. You know which one I skipped? Goodness! <laughs> right? When you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, having believed in Christ, being, having been united with Him, you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8. And guess what? Something good happens. And not only that, good comes out of your life. You get the credit because you're so smart and so good and such a good law keeper. No. Christ gets the credit. The Spirit gets the credit because it's the fruit of the... It's the fruit of the Spirit. 
But Christians do right. And he's saying, I, I don't ever do right. I, I, I need Christ. I need the gospel. A sixth dismal certainty about sin that shows why merely believing the Bible is true cannot save and why the gospel is needed. Number six, sinners are prisoners of sin. Sinners are prisoners of sin. And we've essentially already covered this by talking about bondage, but let's use this one as well because he uses a different word. Feeling good about yourself so far? (laughs) Here's the thing. It's getting us ready for Romans 8. And in a sense, where we should feel horrible, my intent here is not to make all of these, everyone here feel bad. But you know where we really should feel bad and where I feel bad? And I want you to feel bad. Is where we deal with people like this who say they believe the Bible so we don't ever give them the gospel. There's some repenting to be done by pastors and by Christians. His hope and his answer is not in the law. He's already acknowledged the law is good, but he's not. Sinners are prisoners of sin. Look at verse 22 where it says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God. He just keeps saying the same kind of thing. I agree with the law of God in the inner man. That which is mental, the mental aspect of me, the rational aspect of me. I know that the Bible is true. I know that the law of God is right. I realize some, again, on the other side are going to say, there's no way an unbeliever could ever say what he just said. Well, I grant that that's an argument for the other position, that he's a believer speaking here. But, wait a second, time out. There's no way an unbeliever, especially a religious unbeliever, particularly a religious unbeliever, would ever say that the Bible is true, the Bible is good, you should obey the Bible, you should do what the Bible says. To say that an unbeliever would never say that is extremely naive. There are all kinds of famous unbelievers who talk like that. And when you ask them what the gospel is, they don't have the foggiest. If Paul was speaking, reflecting upon his old pharisaical life, he absolutely could talk like this. What did he say in Philippians chapter 3? As to the law found what? Blameless. Or, or how about in, in Romans chapter 10, early on there, where he talks about how the Jews were, were, were zealous for God. But not according to knowledge, he says. But nevertheless, they were zealous. They were passionate about God. They were passionate about Torah. They were passionate about the Bible. I think that's all that's happening here. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I can tell you that it's true and right. Verse 23, But I see a different law in the members of my body, my actions, waging war. That's, that's pretty intense. Against the law of my mind, the reasoning side of me, and, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And again, I'll point out to you, he doesn't say this makes me feel like I'm a prisoner. Making me a prisoner, which is not true of a Christian. Read Romans 6. I realize that you might feel like a prisoner sometimes as a Christian. I do regularly. So I go to Galatians 5 to deal with it. But he's not feeling here. He's saying, this is what's true. I am a prisoner. I'm shackled. I cannot be freed. It's helpless. It's hopeless. I am a prisoner of my sin. 
And then it all comes to a head in verse 24. Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from this body of death? Oh, Paul, you need self-esteem classes. Our church offers those on Wednesday night. No, you don't need those classes. It's the last thing in the... What we wanted you to feel like this. We want you to feel the desperation. Oh, wretched man that I am. I know what the Bible says. I can't do it. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with me. I'm a bad person. I do bad things. I have evil residing in me. I have sin dwelling in me. This is horrific. Why would we go to Romans 7 for hope? There's zero hope at this point in time. This is a tragedy. This is horrific. I think this is why we we need to remind people, even religious people, how about especially religious people, of what the law of God says. Right? You talk to somebody, they say, I believe the Bible is true. But they don't understand the gospel. You know what that tells you? It's a little hint. They don't understand the law. They don't understand that, that God has perfect requirements. They don't understand that if you break God's law, you're so busted it's not even funny, right? I, I, frequently, I use this with people. They say, well, you know, I'm a good person. And, well, you just told me you believe the Bible is true. Well, I know, I'm a good person, and I know if my good outweighs my bad. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I think... I need to talk to them about what God requires because they don't have the foggiest. They would sign a doc- document that says, I believe in the doctrine of inspiration. That would be good. It doesn't save anybody. I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. I have some theological verbiage. Well, that's good and that's important. So would I, but that, that doesn't save you. And so what I say is, you know, the Bible summarizes the whole law by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Point two, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you, here's what God requires. As God, He has the right, He's God. You're His creation. Love Him, be devoted to Him perfectly, all the time, in every way. Even if not especially motives. Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, out of devotion to God, perfect motives all the time. Ready? Go. And in a matter of a millisecond, they haven't done it. We're sinners. We can't do that. Even if we do the externals. It's when somebody truly begins to to grapple with what God requires and just how big this issue is, they're going to find themselves like the Apostle Paul saying, oh, wretched man that I am. I know the right thing to do. I know I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, love my neighbor as myself, but you know what? I know that I don't. And so then we, using great sarcasm now, say, well, let me just give you some helpful hints on how you can perhaps follow these biblical-based principles so that you can love God perfectly all the time and love your neighbor as yourself. What are we thinking? 
What we need to do is step in and say, it's true, it's right, you are wretched. And you know what? It's true and it's right that God is holy and you're a sinner. And you know what's true and righteous and good for me to tell you at this point in time? Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ta-da! Right? You need Christ. You need Christ. You need Christ who came and lived and obeyed God's law perfectly. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength because you couldn't. He came and he died a sinner's death, bearing the wrath of God Almighty so that you wouldn't have to. He rose again from the dead on your behalf so that you could live unto newness of life. It's the gospel. That's what we need to tell people. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. It all changes then. But we don't do that too many times. Even though we should. Number seven. A seventh dismal certainty about sin that shows that merely believing the Bible is true doesn't save people need the gospel. Number seven. Sinners are servants of sin. Sinners are servants of sin. And I realize this is overlapping because he's essentially already covered this. Now, this comes in verse 25 as well. But here's the thing. Well, well, let's go ahead and read it at the end of verse 25. He says, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Again, I I know it's right. I can tell you what's right. By memory, I can tell you what's right. But on the other hand, with my flesh, in other words, as a sinner, the law of sin. I know what's right. I don't do what's right. That's how he ends it. Here's kind of the interesting thing. It's intriguing. In one sense, you know, the beginning of verse 25 doesn't belong. You know, you think, where in the world did that come from? You know, it's a, it's a spirit-induced inspired, I just couldn't help myself (laughs) as well the way I would take it. Because it breaks the flow. In one sense, it doesn't belong there because it's bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And at the end of verse 25, it's bad news. Really, logically, the argument, the progression, we get the good news in chapter 8, verse 1 and following. But we can be thankful that, again, spirit-inspired, spirit-induced, he couldn't help himself. He had, to, he had to get to the punchline before the punchline. The answer to the question, who will rescue me from this problem? Who will rescue me from myself? It's Christ. It's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ is what he says. And I'm thankful because I don't want to wait till next time either. This is probably the 15th time I've said it. I don't know. I'm not keeping track. Please, please remember there are people that you know, there are famous people in this world, famous religious leaders that say they believe the Bible is true. But if you ask them, point two, what the gospel is, they will not say the gospel. They will say something else. 
That means they're still under the power of sin. That means they're still under the penalty of sin. And if I can, in as assertive and yet compassionate a way as I possibly can as a pastor, may I say to you, don't you dare give them principles to live by. Please. What they need is Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God. This man in Romans 7 is powerless. They need the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And then they have the Spirit of God. And then good does come as a result of what God has done in their life. Please. We don't want to be people who are characterized by preaching a false gospel, even though our doctrinal statement looks wonderful. Okay? It's happening all around us. Listen to sermons differently, please. Listen to my sermons differently. Call me on it. Listen to other sermons you hear differently. Are they, in effect, preaching the law of God where they need to be preaching the gospel of God? And if so, repentance needs to be called for. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity I have had this morning, a a very undeserved opportunity that I have to actually stand here and open the Bible and preach. But I would ask that you would use it. You would use our study together to bring our focus to Christ and not to ourselves and not to our wisdom and not to principles and not to telling unbelievers to live like believers when they're not believers. That our hope would be in Christ. That our heralding would be in Christ. And that we would see many people saved. And then we would see many people bearing fruit, bearing fruit unto Christ, drawing attention to Him and His powerful saving work. Lord, make these days ahead glorious and great days no matter what the circumstances are. Make them gospel days as we go from this place. Lord, thank you for now for this opportunity we have to respond even in singing of the greatness of Christ and of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.